We'll go ahead and dismiss our children to Kids Church this morning. Mr. Mario will take all of the little ones. Hey, Bronson, how are you, bud? Uh, well, as our little ones are making their way to Kids Church, uh, I'll give you a brief update and then I'll explain a little bit more uh, at the end of the uh, service today. Uh, the good news is you get to look at my ugly face for the next few weeks. The bad news is it's because I won't be going to India. Uh, the government of India saw fit to uh, deny my visa for the fourth time, uh, so I will not be traveling to India uh, and so we covet your prayers uh, as we try and figure out what God is doing. Uh, you know, I was reminded uh, this week that Adoniram Judson uh, sought to go to India to work with William Carey. And the English government prohibited him from going to India, and therefore he ended up in Burma. And so uh, a pastor friend of mine said, God may be sending you to Burma. Uh, rather than to India. So uh, we'll uh, just seek the Lord when it comes to where He would have us to go. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're continuing to walk through the book of Matthew uh, on our journey uh, to Easter, on our journey to the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, ultimately culminating in Matthew chapter 28, uh, with the Great Commission. Uh, and so this week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 35. Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 35. The scripture says, And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup, Given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out, for, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day which I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You will all fall away this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Let's pray. God, as we read this passage, Lord, may we see your unchanging grace. And even when we fail, even when we fall, Lord, you meet us with grace. God, may we be reminded this morning of how much we need you. And may we run to you with open arms and fall upon the foot of the cross. 
We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to be talking about God's unchanging grace. We have a tendency when we read the Bible to read the Bible as, as two different volumes. Uh, we, we have a tendency to read the Old Testament as, well, this is the way that God used to operate. And then we read the New Testament. This is how God operates today. We read the Old Testament as uh, this was the God of Israel, and we read the New Testament that this is the God of the New Testament church. But I submit to us this morning that, that God is unchangeable. God is immutable. God does not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, old, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The way that God interacted and interceded for His people and with His people in the Old Testament is the same way that God intercedes and interacts with His people in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at, this morning, we're going to look at the Passover meal the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to look at Peter's, Peter and the Apostles' response to the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. Well, as we do this, I want us to know that, that we will hopefully leave this place knowing God's grace that much more intimately. So as we talk about the Passover meal, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, we need to understand that Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 26 through 30 is Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. This was the traditional Passover meal that all of the Jews would have been celebrating during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, during the Feast of the Passover. And so th this is not some, some new tradition that Jesus is starting. This is not something that, that would have been any way, in any way inconsistent with the traditional Passover meal that would have been celebrated during the Passover whenever Jesus was alive. And so we, we need to understand the basic tenets for the Passover meal. So if you go with me, I want us to read Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, just to give us a, a framework for what we're dealing with. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 7, 8, and 9. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 9. Now, the scripture, this, this is... To, to put things into perspective for us, to, to set the setting, Israel was in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, they were in uh, Egypt and they had been in Egypt because God had used Joseph and God had used uh, the providence of God to spare the Israelites of the famine. And through Joseph and through the leadership and through the providence of God, all of Israel, had, all of Israel and Egypt had been spared the famine and God had provided for Israel and God had provided for Egypt in the midst of a great famine. But then the scripture tells us at the end of Genesis that there arose a king, there arose a pharaoh over Egypt who did not know Joseph, nor the works of Joseph, nor the works of God. And so because of fear that, that the Israelites would take over, that this king of Egypt enslaved the Israelites. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites were in slavery and in captivity and in oppression under the Egyptian civilization, under the Egyptian king. And so this is the setting. Now the Egyptians are slaughtering and murdering the firstborn. The, they're, they're slaughtering and killing all of the male children that are born to the, to the Israelites. And they're doing so because they're trying to stop the Israelites from, from multiplying. They're trying to stop the Israelites from their population exploding because they're afraid of the Israelites. And so these, these Hebrews are the, the boys, the young men 
from the Hebrews are being thrown into the Nile River. They are being killed by the midwives. They are being killed because Pharaoh is afraid of Egypt. I'm sorry, Pharaoh is afraid of the Israelites, of the Hebrews. And so here is the setting. Exodus chapter 3, God says this to Moses. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. And so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land that flows with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with, with, with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so we need to understand that the Passover in and of itself was a response of God to the oppression and the afflictions of his people. God said, I have heard their cry, I have seen their afflictions, and I have chosen to to intercede on their behalf. And so God began sending plague after plague after plague throughout all of Egypt. And the final plague that he sends, the scripture tells us, is he sends an angel of death that will destroy and will kill all of the firstborn of all of the families except those who have taken the lamb and slaughtered it and put the blood over the doorpost. For all of those who are under the blood, the death angel will pass over them and death will not come to their household. And so this is the celebration. This is the celebration that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. And I want us to understand that for Israel, Passover meant two things. And we need to understand this because as we talk about the Lord's Supper and as we, we transition from a, a Old Testament Israelite understanding of Passover to a New Testament, New Covenant understanding of Passover and the Lord's Supper, the meaning and the symbolism is exactly the same. For the Israelites, Passover meant two things. It was a symbol of grace and it was a symbol of belonging. It was a symbol of grace and it was a symbol of belonging. First of all, for the Israelite, for the Hebrew in Egypt, the Passover took place, the death angel passed over the people of Israel, not because they were Israelites. We need to understand this. The circumcision, the old covenant, did not guarantee them that God would pass over them. It did not guarantee that the death angel would not come to their household. The Passover took place not because of any merit that they had. They could have been the Israelite of all Israelites. They could have been the, 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 the very Levites. They could have been the priests. They could have been the high priest. And the merit of who they were did not guarantee them deliverance from death. But what did? The substitute. The grace of God. Whenever God sent the death angel, God sent the plague of death, He said all of those who are under the blood, 
You don't have to, you don't have to have any merit in and of yourself. You don't have to, you don't have to, to read your Bible. You don't have to go to Sunday school. You don't have to be a church member. You don't have to tithe X amount. You don't have to know somebody who knows somebody. All you have to do is be under the blood. All you have to do is take refuge under the Lamb. The Passover was a reminder of God's grace, that it has absolutely nothing to do with who we are, nothing to do with our merit, nothing to do with what we bring to the table, and it has everything to do with God's grace and God's mercy and God's loving kindness. And so for Israel, the Passover reminded them of God's unchanging grace and God's immeasurable grace that He pours out to His people. But secondly, it reminded them of a belonging. That when, when, they, when the death angel came and passed over all of those who were under the blood, they left Egypt all together and they were unified as a people. And who were those people? Those people whom the death angel had passed over. Those people who had taken refuge under the Lamb. And for Israel, this signified a great sense of belonging. It was an identifier for them. It defined who they were. They were the people whom God had delivered out of bondage. They were the people whom God had had taken from oppression and taken from affliction and delivered them, whom God had, had individually, circumstantially intervened on their behalf because He had heard their cry And He had brought them out of deliverance. He had brought them out of sheer and utter desolation. And He had brought them into the promised land. And for Israel, Passover was a great reminder that God is gracious and that we are His people and He is our God. The Passover was a meal that brought the deliverance of the past into the present. Listen to hear that. The Passover meal was the event whenever all of Israel would gather together and they would eat this meal, and that meal, whenever they would take the bitter herb and they would take the unleavened bread, and they would take the unleavened bread and they would dip it in the wine and they would eat the roasted lamb and they would do so fully clothed, with their sandals on their feet, reminding them that that's how God had commanded the Israelites to eat the Passover meal. Because as soon as we were done eating, and as soon as that land passed over, God said, we're getting out of town. We are getting out of Dodge, and and, and He is delivering us. And so there was an expectancy, and there was a belonging. And eating that meal every year reminded them. It brought the events of the past into the present. How many of us, have, have sat around grandma's table and we've heard the, the, the familiar sounds of the, of the cooking going on in the kitchen and we've smelled the, the turkey and we've smelled the, the dressing and the pumpkin pie or the pecan pie and all of a sudden, that moment, we are, we are ushered into a different time and place. Has anybody ever had that, that, that experience whenever, whenever you walk into grandma's kitchen and, and you smell the pecan pie or the apple pie and all of a sudden it brings you back to a place? 
Maybe it wasn't Thanksgiving. Maybe it was, it was you, you walk outside and, and you smell the barbecue pit and it reminds you of that time at, at great-grandma's whenever we were all sitting around and we were roasting hot dogs or we were cooking hamburgers. And it, it just it brings the past into the present. Do you think that God understands our human faculties? And what has the power to transform us and to bring us to to another place in space and time more so than food? Whenever whenever, you you hear the burner outside and you know that somebody's boiling crawfish and, and you smell the crab boil and immediately you begin to salivate, it's because food... And the way that God designed us, food has that way of bringing us into a different place in space and time. That's why God established the Passover meal as a meal. Because He wanted every time the Israelites took that lamb and roasted it, and they took that bitter herb, And they dipped it in the wine. They took that unleavened bread and they dipped it in the wine. And they took a bite. He wanted to transform them. He wanted to bring them from from a past deliverance. He wanted to bring that past deliverance of grace and belonging and to bring it present. He wanted them to be able to taste and see that the Lord is good. That He keeps His promises from generation to generation to generation. That the Lord is slow to anger, but abounding in loving kindness. That God does what He says He's going to do. That was the Passover meal. And so as the disciples are sitting there, and they're being, they're being transformed into this, into this separate time and place, Jesus redefines this for them. And he takes the bread and he holds up the unleavened bread and says, this is my bread and he breaks it. My body, which is broken for you. This is the cup, the cup of the new covenant. Reminding them, Jeremiah 31, that, that, that I will give you a new covenant. I will write my name upon your heart and I will be your God and you will be my people and, and I will deliver you and I will save you and I will give you a new heart like he says in Ezekiel. I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And he reminds him, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood which is given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus redefines this and then he commands us as the church to take this meal. Because what this Passover meal, what the Lord's Supper will do, is it will remind us of God's grace and our belonging. And it will transform us. It will take that past deliverance of the cross and it will bring it present. And every time, this do, do this in remembrance of me. And whenever you do, that past Deliverance will be made present. And whenever we take the bread and we break it, we should be reminded of the cross when Jesus suffered. And He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And whenever He takes the cup and He says, this is My blood which is shed for you, we remember the statement of Jesus when He said, it is finished. It is paid in full. There is no longer a debt that is owed. And we can take refuge under the blood. And it's not because of anything that we do, but it is all because of what He has done for us. The Passover meal 
and the Lord's Supper are one and the same. What the Passover meal did for Israel, the Lord's Supper does for us. It reminds us of God's grace and it reminds us of our belonging. We belong to Him. He is our God and we are His people. Not because of anything we've done, but all because of what He has done. The Lord's Supper for us reminds us of grace and belonging. I want us to go to the text. And I want us to see something. I want us to see the apostles' response to Jesus' redefining of this Passover meal. Verse 31. So they sing a song. That's how you know they were Baptists. They have to close everything with a song. Verse 31. After they get done, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And look at verse 33. But Peter answered and said to them, Even though all may fall away from you, I will never fall away. Now Jesus has just said to them, in the Passover meal, in the Lord's Supper, He has said, I am reminded you, I am reminding you that your belonging to Me is all of grace. It has nothing to do with anything that you have ever done or ever will do. That you are mine because of grace and because of not your merit. Because of nothing you have done or will ever do. You are mine because I have called you mine. And that's it. And he says, just so you know, you're going to fall away. Do you hear that in this passage... God expects more failure from us than we expect from ourselves? Let that sink in for just a moment. God expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself. I've got three children. Three very beautiful, wonderfully obedient Excellent students, just just fantastic children. Yet, when I tell them to go clean their room, I know what to expect. I know when I walk in Nicholas's room, it's going to be spotless. Yet, when I lift up the bed, there's going to be 78 stuffed animals and shoes and, and, and pants and socks. And, and as I begin pulling stuff out, uh, the only thing that will rival the amount of stuff under his bed is the stuff that's in his closet. And I know what to expect because I'm his dad. When I tell Daniel to cut the grass, I know what to expect. I know that, 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 that he's going to do his very best, but whenever I go out there, there's going to be strips that wide that are this tall, and he's going to say, Dad, I cut the grass, and I'm going to say, yeah, but you missed you know, half the backyard, and I'm going to have to go behind him, and I'm going to I'm gonna have to cut, and, and that's okay. Because he's my son. And I love him. Now, do I eventually want him to learn how to cut the grass without missing it? Yes. Do I eventually want Nicholas to learn how to clean up his room without shoving everything under the bed and in the closet? Yes. But do I expect a seven-year-old to clean the room like I would? Or let's be honest, like his mother would? (laughs) No, I don't. I don't expect my 7-year-old to clean the room like his mom would. I don't expect my 12-year-old to cut the grass like I would because I'm his dad and I know him. And I expect him to act like a 7-year-old. 
and to act like a 12-year-old. God knows us, church. Jesus knows Peter. He knows his heart. He knows his his failures. He knows his, his flaws. And he loves him anyway. The grace of God is such that he knows all of our failures at one time. He sees every sin that you have ever done and will ever do. And He sent Jesus anyway. The grace of God is magnified here. Jesus just reminded him. He just reminded him that you belong to me because of my grace. And that even though you will fail and even though you will deny me, you are mine. And I love you. And I want you to hear Peter's response Peter responds, just like I would. Look at what he says in verse 33. Peter answered and said, even though all may fall away, I will never fall away. Peter wants to demonstrate his merit. He wants to demonstrate his worthiness for God's grace. How many of us have responded to God's grace by saying, because you have given me such grace and because you have lavished upon me such love and compassion, I am going to prove to you that I am worthy of your grace. How how human is that? God gives us grace with no strings attached and then we begin attaching strings. We begin to say, because you have loved me, because you've poured out your mercy, because you are God who is loving kindness, let me show you how how much I deserve your grace. And let me begin to demonstrate to you that if everybody else falls away, I will certainly not. Such is the human condition. Yet God is able to see our deceitful heart and He loves us still. Romans 5, 8 Paul says it like this, God demonstrates His great love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We'll call your attention to the story of Hosea. The story of Hosea is a story that many of us like to think is an allegory. We fail to realize that God in His great grace called a man named Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman, Gomer, who is loved by her husband. The word there is not translated, should not be translated husband, but rather loved by a companion. The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her companion, yet is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raising cakes. Verse 2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Let me paint the story for you. Hosea marries a woman, Gomer, who's a harlot, who's a prostitute, loves her, treats her as his wife, And then Gomer leaves and becomes a prostitute again. Whether, whether because of, of destitution or whether because of 
whatever the, the means are. We don't, we don't know the exact circumstances of why Gomer falls into prostitution again. But we do know this, that God tells Hosea, go get your wife. And Hosea goes and finds his wife and purchases her like one would purchase a prostitute and takes her home and loves her and becomes her husband again. This is a picture of God's grace. But I want us to understand there was really a man named Hosea and there was really a woman named Gomer who had given herself to other men and Hosea went and bought his own wife and loved her because God's grace is that amazing, church. Our pride wants to earn God's grace Peter's pride wants to say, I see how amazing your grace is. Let me show you that I am worthy of it. And God says, there is no way that you can ever in a million years earn my grace because my grace is that amazing. Paul had to warn the church to not abuse God's grace because it was so amazing. He says, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? May it never be. Why does Paul have to give that that disclaimer to the grace of God Except for that the grace of God is that amazing. That no matter what we have done, no matter what we ever will do, that God's grace is amazing. It is changeless. He says to the prodigal son, your servant eating pig slop, covered in filth, I love you. He says to the woman caught in the very act of adultery, he says, I love you. He says to Rahab the harlot, I love you. He says the Ruth, the Moabitess, the enemy of God, I love you. He says to you this morning, though your sin be as scarlet, I will make it as white as snow. Jesus had just reminded him of his grace and his belonging, not based upon their merit, yet their human condition could not understand grace. The depth of God's grace is unfathomable. Turn to John chapter 21 as we close. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I'm sorry, you're going to deny, yeah, three, he says, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And Peter says, I'll never deny you, even if I have to die with you. I will not deny you. Yet we know from the scripture, we know from the narrative, that before that night, before the cock crows, Peter denies Jesus three times. As Jesus is standing before the high priest Annas, the true high priest, as Jesus is standing before Annas, and and Peter is given the opportunity to have association with Jesus, he denies him three times, and he hears that cock crow, and Peter realizes the depth of his betrayal. And then Jesus after His resurrection, shows up to all the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and He cooks some breakfast. And He says, Hey Peter, nice to see you. In John chapter 21, verse 15, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus looked at Simon and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Because what had Peter just said in Matthew chapter 26? If every one of these betray you, if every one of these deny you, I will not. Peter said, Jesus, I love you more than everybody else. And so what did Jesus ask Peter? Do you love me more than everybody else? Do you hear what Jesus is asking him? And Peter responds in arrogance and pride and says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, Tend my lambs. He said, Peter, again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? At that moment, Peter realized, I know why he asked me three times. Because I denied him three times. But what's Jesus' response? Tend my lambs. Does Jesus say, see, I told you you would deny me. Does Jesus hold his sin over his head? Does Jesus say, you're not good enough and I knew you weren't good enough? Your merit is never going to make it. You're never going to measure up. That's not what God does, church. Salvation is not Jesus plus obedience. It's not Jesus plus church membership. It's not Jesus plus Sunday school. It's not Jesus plus a mission trip. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's grace plus nothing. And the moment that we grasp the depth of grace, that's the moment that it changes our lives from the inside out. You cannot experience the depth of God's grace and not be forever impacted. That's why the disciples, whenever they were beaten and they were flogged in front of the church, in front of the synagogue, and they said, don't speak about this Jesus ever again. And they said, kill us if you got to. But we cannot stop, but we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard because we have experienced the depth of God's grace. Church, have you experienced the depth of God's grace? If you're holding on to past failures, thinking God can never, God can never forgive me. Or my wife or my husband could never forgive me. You don't understand the depth of God's grace. This morning, I want to encourage you to see the depth of God's grace. In the moment that you think you've understood how deep And how wide is the grace of God? And you need to start over. Because you cannot possibly fathom the depth of His grace. For God so loved the world, He sent His only Son. That we might have eternal life. Let's pray.